Bola boss, you fussy Duncans. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. Let's begin this week's episode with a short piece of prose by Hollywood actor Pierce Brasnan. He sent me this poem using his mind and it's called Topless in Quinsworth. Topless in Quinsworth. Got caught shoplifting a box full of tapeworms. I adopted a racehorse. I bought him some space clothes. I ate pastry and nace once while I was topless in Quinsworth. That was Topless in Quinsworth by Hollywood actor Pierce Brasnan. Haven't heard much from him lately. Oh, Pierce Brasnan. Can never get my head around Pierce Brasnan. I once missed a bus while thinking about Pierce Brasnan. Because I can't quite... You can't place him. I know that Pierce Brasnan is from... Drahada, I think. We know that he's Irish. But he's not really Irish though, is he? He's mid-Atlantic. He's mid-Atlantic. That strange, strange situation that befalls a small amount of Irish actors. He's mid-Atlantic. So Pierce Brosnan is is definitely mid-Atlantic. Liam Neeson tries his best. And then you've got fucking Daniel Day-Lewis, man. Daniel Day-Lewis. Daniel Day-Lewis is English, right? He's English, but he's kind of Irish. We don't know why. Like, we don't... We don't call him Irish. He doesn't call himself Irish. And we're not like claiming him the way that the English do if an Irish actor becomes suddenly successful. No one's claiming him. It's just Daniel Day-Lewis is Irish. Like the way a goat is a male sheep. It's not. It's not at all. But a goat is a male sheep. Or an owl is a cat with wings. It's not. But it's okay. It feels right. I think sometime around 1991, after his performance in Christy Brown and In the Name of the Father, Daniel DeLewis just moved to Wicklow and just said, I'm Irish. And then we all said, okay. And since then, he's kind of just been Irish, but he involuntarily drifts out into the mid-Atlantic. I don't know where the mid-Atlantic is. It's in the middle of the ocean between America and Ireland. I don't like it. What, what it could be the ancient island of High Brazil. Where the fuck are these mid-Atlantic actors from? And it's always actors. It's always male actors. It's never actress. Um, there's a few Welsh actors who are mid-Atlantic. Anthony Hopkins. Like we all know that Anthony Hopkins is Welsh, but he's mid-Atlantic. He's just there drifting in the middle of the ocean. You can see sometimes Brendan Gleeson tries to have a little crack at being mid-Atlantic. And he can try his best, but Brendan Gleeson is afflicted with what we call big Irish head. Brendan Gleeson has a big Irish head. And I don't mean that as an insult. It's just a thing that we have. Big Irish head. It sounds terrible, but it's a very useful thing. Especially if you're in like an airport in Thailand and there's no signs that you can understand. You just look around and you see a big Irish head and you walk over and you go, what's the crack? I don't know where gate 13 is and then they go, oh, it's yourself, it's over there. I think you become mid-Atlantic. It's when your accent is a bit difficult. So if you have an Irish accent or a Welsh accent or a Scottish accent and you find yourself becoming famous in America, your voice ends up, you end up getting this middle ground and we call that mid-Atlantic. Who else was mid-Atlantic? Sean Connery is mid-Atlantic. He's from Scotland. Fucking Sting, man. Sting. 
You ever heard Sting talking? And Sting's English, but he's from Newcastle. Which is a very, very difficult accent for an American to understand, so Sting is mid-Atlantic. The fucking Newcastle accent, man. What is that accent? Don't look at me. I don't even like macarons. Your man Liam Payne from One Direction tried to have a very public and unashamed bash at being mid-Atlantic recently. He was interviewed at the Oscars after Will Smith slapped Chris Rock into the face and they interviewed Liam Payne from One Direction and he just had this incredible accent. What the fuck was that? Because he's Welsh, you see. So he went bollock first into the mid-Atlantic but it was too performative, no one believed it. He might have had a nostril foot of the devil's dandruff, we won't know. But he fucking, man, he got on a boat. He got on a boat and went off off the coast to Kerry and tried to stake a claim. Tried to put a Welsh flag down into the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And Pierce Brosnan and Anthony Hopkins politely told him to fuck off back to Wales. You don't get to choose mid-Atlantic, it chooses you, it's a thing that happens to you. Like finding your first grey pube. And watch your man from One Direction, Niall Horan. He's too Irish. He could never att- if he if he even tried Mid Atlantic, he wouldn't be allowed. And Niall Horan knows that he can't, because Niall he doesn't have big Irish head, but he will have big Irish head. You can see that about Niall Horan. That, like at the moment, he's he's like in the cocoon phase of big Irish head. But one day, when he gets to about thirty-two. He will emerge into a beautiful butterfly of big Irish head. I like Niall Horan, he's a bit of an odd bastard. He's very unapologetic about who he is and I admire that. He once tried to cancel a One Direction tour so that he could become Rory McIlroy's golf caddy. I'm not very good at seeing into the distance. I wear glasses when I'm in places like airports. But I don't really need them, but they're handy. And when I noticed that my eyesight was getting a bit shit... But five years ago. I have Niall Horan to thank because he came out with an album and the album was called Flicker. Flicker. And I was in like Tesco or somewhere and they were selling a load of Niall Horan's Flicker album up by the tills. And if you look at it from like six feet away, it looks like fucker. The L and the I joined together to form a U and I was just like yeah fucking man fair play Niall Horan <laughs> I was full sure for like two minutes that Niall Horan had, j- had just bit the bullet and said I'm after leaving One Direction and my first album is going to be called Fucker but it's not it's called Flicker but because in my mind his album is actually called Fucker it's now perpetually sexual and there's nothing I can do about it so even now that I know it's called Flicker I sexualise that word now when I see it on Niall Horan's album. I'm like, flicking what, Niall? Fannies? But yeah, Niall Horan's album, Flicker, is called Fucker, in the same way that Daniel Day-Lewis is Irish. You're very welcome to the Blind Boy podcast. If this is your first Blind Boy podcast, I suggest going back to some earlier episodes to familiarise yourself with the lore of this podcast. If you're a regular listener, if you're a cruising Susan, or a Nietzsche Richard. You know the crack. Just a little update on my tour of England, Scotland and Wales. Um, Yeah, I've got a tour of England, Scotland and Wales that's happening in June. 
the tickets went on sale there on Friday. I'm playing in London, in the Troxy, Cardiff in the Glee Club, Manchester in the Academy too. Although Manchester's nearly sold out so we're moving to a bigger venue. And then I'm in Glasgow, up in Scotland, in the O2 Academy. And you can get those tickets if you Google them online. One thing I want to say about the London show in the Troxy. If you booked tickets for my London gig in Logan Hall in 2020, which I had to cancel due to the coronavirus. Um, If you bought tickets for that gig in 2020, which was cancelled, you are allowed to go to that Troxy gig. So those tickets are completely transferable. And you should be getting... So if you bought tickets to my London gig in 2020, that was cancelled. You should be getting an email from Ticketmaster. You might have it already. You might be getting it in the next week or two. But check your emails, check your spam folder. Because what I've been told is that you'll be allocated new seats, basically, in the Troxy. Now, two years has passed, so you mightn't even be living in London. In that case, you're fully entitled to a refund. No problem. But I'm going to make sure that those emails go out Um, See, it's not something that's entirely in my control because it's fucking Ticketmaster, you know, and what are you going to do? I'd love to not work with Ticketmaster on certain gigs because they introduce fees and shit, but sometimes you just have to. Because I don't organise the tours, I just show up and another company organises them. But you will be getting an email, check your spam folder, and if you don't get it, contact Ticketmaster yourself. I'm going to do my best to make sure those emails go out. What I do have control over is reminding you in this podcast and using my social media. And I look forward to coming over to all you delicious cracking tens. And don't be worrying if in June I'm just coming to Cardiff and Glasgow and London and fucking Manchester. I'll probably do a second leg of the tour where I'll come to places like hopefully Bristol, Sheffield, Newcastle. We'll see what the crack is. I'm here now in my delicious office. Um... It's after five o'clock that I'm recording this because it was a particularly noisy day in my office today. As you know, I've spoken in great detail about this office. I'm in a shared office complex. Multiple different companies on my hallway. They don't always show up to work because of work from home or whatever. So often my corridor is fairly quiet. Um, With the exception, of course, of the barefoot accountant. But the barefoot accountant situation has been resolved. I spoke to him. He's no longer walking the hallways barefoot, howling in pain. So I generally have a quiet office space. But today, like everyone came into work. Everyone. So it was chaos. The barefoot accountant behaved himself. He stayed in his office. But now there was all these other fucking cunts. Doors wide open, screaming and shouting. Zoom calls not being done with headphones, which I don't understand. I don't understand that. If you're doing a Zoom call, put on your headphones. I don't need to hear someone from Dublin being tinnily broadcasted all over the hallways. So the noise was getting pretty extreme. So I was like, fuck it, I can't record now. I need to do something about this. Because that's in breach of the rules. You're not supposed to make the corridors noisy. So I'm, I'm entitled to tell people to stop. So what I did today was, so when I'm in my office, like my actual office room, first thing I do is I put on my office pants, 
so I have outdoor pants and indoor pants. My outdoor pants are functional and fashionable, but my indoor pants are just little grey tracksuits. Little comfy baggy grey tracksuit that I like to wear inside my office. But this is inappropriate attire for outside the office. So I keep the pants on inside the office. Also what I do is I take my shoes off. Inside my office I take my shoes off. So today I decided to wander out around the corridor to try and tell some people to close their doors. But I forgot to put my shoes back on. And then I look down and it's like, oh my god. Now I'm in the fucking corridor barefoot. So now I'm the barefoot accountant. I've become the barefoot accountant. I was fucking barefoot in the hallways. I felt like I was going mad. So I ran back inside and put my shoes back on. And then I didn't go and sort the issue because I... (laughs) Because I'd startled myself. I'd frightened myself that... The barefoot accountant no longer walks around barefoot. He stays in his office. And unconsciously, I had to redress the balance. I had to create the chaos now. So instead of addressing the issue, I just waited until 5pm for everyone to go home. And now I have the entire office complex to myself. So this week, I have a sprawling hot take for ye. About a very strange and bizarre, unknown book that I found it's not a particularly good book but I'm fascinated by it I'm really really fascinated by it and I want to speak about it and explore some of its themes first I want to speak a bit about post-colonial theory post-colonial theory is it's a way to read society culture cultural artefacts such as books films ideology From the perspective of colonisation, specifically post-colonisation. Now I speak about post-colonialism a lot, especially when I speak about Ireland and I look at Irish culture. In terms of what Irish culture is, having been colonised for 800 years. But post-colonialism can apply to any any culture that has been colonised or the cultural output of the country doing the colonising one thing that fascinates me is orientalism as we'd call it the way that the west whether it be English speaking countries whether it be America or Britain the way that the west views the east or the area that would be referred to as the orient which is a colonial word so this weird thing happens in culture where Once one society colonises, dominates or brutalises another, right? Let's just take, for example, Britain and China. So this is a huge area, so I'm going to simplify it as much as possible. So Britain engaged in a massive war for for a large part of the 19th century with China called the Opium Wars. And Britain basically wanted to trade with China because China had a shit ton of goods that Europe wanted. Mainly tea, silk, porcelain. Europe really, really wanted this shit. So that seemed fairly straightforward. It's like, okay, China's got a bunch of tea, silk and porcelain. All right, Britain, just take a few ships over there and buy it. What's wrong with that? 
Well, Britain didn't really want to buy it. Britain wanted instead to trade. Because the Chinese were like, yeah, you can have all the tea and silk you want. Just give us gold. We want, you know, pay us money and then you can buy it off us. But Britain wants to trade and the things that Britain had to trade, the Chinese didn't really want. Like Britain was trying to trade things like furniture or wool and the Chinese were like, no, we don't really want that. And Britain didn't like this because Britain was like, we don't want to go buying your fucking tea. Trade with us. We don't want anything that you have. Well, fuck you. So what did Britain do? Britain created a demand in China for opium, okay? So Britain got opium from India and basically flooded China with opium. Opium is, it's heroin basically. It's not heroin, but it's what heroin comes from. So Britain flooded China with opium, created huge, huge amounts of opium addicts. Now all of a sudden, China needed opium because there was opium addicts in China. So now the Brits were like, great, you need opium. You've got loads and loads of heroin addicts now essentially and now you need this. So you give us tea and silk and porcelain and we'll give you all the opium you want. Which is kind of shitty. Now China didn't like the fact that it had loads and loads of opium addicts now because it was really impacting how society was running because people were losing their lives to opium addiction. So China said, fuck that, we're going to try and ban the importation of opium, opium is now illegal, and then the opium war started. Britain kind of went to war with China to force them to trade opium. So that's a really bad thing, a really bad and evil thing that Britain did to China. But then what happens in British culture around the end of the 19th century and in the early 20th century, you start to see in books and on stage shows and in plays, all of a sudden now Britain is portraying Chinese people as evil opium addicts. And they would have, I think the character's name was Fu Manchu. And Fu Manchu became like this stock character that would be used in English books and plays. And it was this evil Chinese mastermind who would come to London and then fill the place full of opium dens. And it's like the Chinese are coming to England with their opium and are going to destroy our society. And this created what is known in post-colonial theory as the Yellow Peril. This fear of East Asian people as being bringers of debauchery and drugs and they're going to destroy English society with their opium. But it's really cruel and ironic because it was the Brits who did that to China. So what happens sometimes in when one society colonizes or brutalizes or commits violence against another, that society then becomes unconsciously terrified that they will get revenge by doing the exact same thing. And this then emerges in the popular culture. And it is propaganda. Like it is, it's, it's racist, anti, anti-Asian propaganda. And it is propaganda. But the driving force behind it is it's not as deliberate. It's an unconscious fear. I, f- I refuse to acknowledge what I have done to you. I won't acknowledge it publicly. We don't speak about the opium wars. We don't talk about that England flooded China with opium. We don't mention that. But we know it. But because we don't mention it, 
it will unconsciously come back as a fear that we have towards you. America, similarly, has issues with what you'd call yellow peril. America dropped a nuclear bomb on Japan in World War II. The only time a nuclear bomb was ever dropped on anybody, America did it to Japan in the 1940s to Hiroshima and Nagasaki and killed hundreds of thousands of people in one go. It's one of the worst single acts of war ever committed by one country against another. Also, when America and Japan went to war with each other in World War II, America just got a bunch of people who were Japanese on the West Coast. These were people who may have been from Japan or even people who just had Japanese parents, American citizens with Japanese parents. America got them all and sent them to internment camps. These people did nothing wrong. They just happened to be of Japanese ancestry. So that's a really bad thing that America did to Japan. So what you're left with in American culture is this deep unconscious fear of revenge. And you see this really evidently in in the 1980s in particular with cyberpunk, the genre of cyberpunk. So if you think of a film like Blade Runner, for instance, Blade Runner was made in 1982. It was set in 2019. And it's a dystopian vision of the future. And when you think of cyberpunk dystopia, right, the 1980s prediction of what the future will be like, that dystopian future is often quite Asian. It's often, it's Los Angeles or it's New York. And these cities are really, really dark. And no one really speaks English anymore. And all the signs are in Japanese or in Chinese. And this this deep fear, when America was, was imagining its dystopia, dystopia being, what's a really depressing, bad future? What's a bad, terrifying vision of the future? In, in the 1980s, the terrifying, bad vision of the future for America is that it would become Asian. Because in the 1980s too, Japan had an economic boom and this economic boom was caused by Japanese electronics and Japanese cars and Japan were so good at producing electronics and cars that you know American car factories shut down and people feared oh no the Japanese are going to get their revenge but they'll get their revenge through technology and they will colonize America and America won't be American anymore It'll be Asian. Two huge examples of this are, like I said, Blade Runner. You look at Blade Runner and you go, why is there, why is there so many Asian things, Japanese or Chinese things in the, vi- in the dark vision of the future? The other film is one called Black Rain, which is also directed by Ridley Scott a year after Blade Runner. And it looks quite like Blade Runner. Now, Black Rain is a shit film, but it's a, a visually beautiful film. It's very visually beautiful, but it's a terrible film. Black Rain is, it stars Michael Douglas and it's set in 1983 in New York. And basically what it's about is Michael Douglas is a policeman. And while he's in New York, the Japanese mafia, who are the Yakuza, are taking over New York. And what's interesting there, it's the fear of Japan. It's the the fear that Japan is going to get revenge on America. But also what's interesting is the name of the film, Black Rain. Black Rain literally means the rain that falls 
on a society, the radioactive rain that falls after a nuclear bomb. But literally the title of that film means revenge for Nagasaki and Hiroshima. That's what it means. But it's not coming in the form of a nuclear bomb from Japan. It's coming in the form of the Yakuza criminal organisation who are going to bring their drugs and violence to the streets of New York. Another very, very bad and incredibly racist film that was made around the same time, and again, this was a blockbuster, 1985, a film called Year of the Dragon that stars Mickey Rourke. And Mickey Rourke, that film is basically the same plot as Black Rain, except instead of the Yakuza, it's the Chinese triads. So it's about Mickey Rourke is a no-bullshit detective in fucking Chinatown in New York and the triads are taken over. And it's quite racist and the central theme of the film is that the white saviour who represents American values is the last person fighting against these triad Chinese gangs or against these Yakuza. But really, the underlying theme has nothing to do with crime. It has to do with we're America and we're a superpower and we've done some bad shit to Japan and we're just kind of afraid that they're going to take over. And this film enacts as a metaphor for our fear. Now another film that tackles these exact issues from around the same time is called Big Trouble in Little China. But the difference is with Big Trouble in Little China this is a John Carpenter film. And John Carpenter is a very, very very good director who's very smart so Big Trouble in Little China is almost a parody it's taking the piss out of how fucking ridiculous and racist Black Rain and Year of the Dragon are Big Trouble in Little China stars Kurt Russell and Kurt Russell is a white American truck driver who drives this giant big American truck and he finds himself in Chinatown fighting the triad gangs but this film is consciously sending up stereotypes in order to call out the ridiculous racism that is present at the time like it turns all the stereotypes up to 11 like the fact that Kurt Russell drives this big American truck and this truck can't even fit down the alleyways of, of Chinatown. And it, it's very clear and blatant that Kurt Russell's character is this ridiculous metaphor for like a rust belt, working class white American man. And then all the triad characters that he has to battle, they're so utterly ridiculous. And they take from lots of stereotypes around Asian characters. I think there's a Fu Manchu character there. There's a character who later became Raiden in Mortal Kombat. He has a traditional Chinese hat and can control lightning. But basically, Big Trouble in Little China, on the surface, looks like one of these Yellow Peril films, but it isn't. It's, I think, John, John Carpenter's context and intent was to call out how fucking ridiculous this was by turning everything up to 11. John Carpenter is an incredible filmmaker very very intelligent filmmaker who's deeply unique in that John Carpenter makes films that are fucking shit they're really really deliberately shit but they're so clever John Carpenter is like a gourmet chef 
who makes McDonald's. It's like if you went to a gourmet chef and said, make a Big Mac. Now, don't change anything. We don't want a brioche bun. We don't want any fancy coleslaw. Make a fucking Big Mac, but make it the best Big Mac that you can possibly make. That's what John Carpenter's films are. He takes from Hollywood fucking trash and makes these deeply intelligent films. If you want to see some... The two best John Carpenter films, in my opinion, are... Big Trouble in Little China and also They Live. They Live is fucking incredible. I want to do a podcast on that film alone at some point. Look at They Live from 1986, I believe. It's so stupid and so smart at the same time. But basically what has me thinking about this shit is the tendency within a uh, colonising culture to produce cultural artefacts that represent this unconscious fear of revenge and it has to be unconscious it's not real deliberate propaganda it's something that the filmmaker is almost not consciously aware of because because they've they have bought into the lies and propaganda of their own culture so much that they're not even really consciously aware of what they're doing they're churning it out as ideological fodder that they don't question and it got me thinking Jesus have, have has Britain ever done this with Ireland because I can't think of any examples has Britain ever created because Britain colonised Ireland for 800 years Britain did terrible awful things to Ireland the whole shebang fucking lost half our population in the famine murder genocide destroying our land extracting resources robbing us of our language 800 years of it surely the Brits have made something that is like what if the Irish do that to us up until this podcast today the one example I could think of is there's a film from 1989 called Elephant now this is actually a beautiful film Elephant as a piece of cinema is gorgeous It's made in 1989, it was directed by Alan Clark, produced by Danny Boyle, who went on to make Trainspotting. And what Elephant is, Elephant has, it's 45 minutes long, it has no plot, no plot whatsoever. It's set in the north of Ireland, during the Troubles, there's no dialogue, there's no plot. I think you'll get it on YouTube if you look for it. What Elephant is, is I think it's 17 people being murdered. That's all it is. It's just 17 separate scenes of people being shot in the north of Ireland. People, someone's in a shop, someone's in a service station, someone's sweeping the floor. And all it does is it follows the assassin each time to just shoot someone in their daily life. Now the reason it's so beautiful is in my opinion the film Elephant invented how people get murdered in modern cinema. If you look at Elephant and you look at how each person is killed and then go and watch something like Reservoir Dogs 1991 or you go and watch something like Goodfellas by Martin Scorsese in 1991 the way that gangland murder happens on cinema 
that exact that was invented by Elephant. The way they followed the assassin with a steady cam and then someone shot. That template was invented by Elephant. So for that reason, I admire the film and I think it's very beautiful as a piece of cinema. Like before Elephant, murders as they happened on camera, were it was very dramatic. Like you think of The Godfather, very dramatic. Cowboy films, very dramatic. Old gangster films, very dramatic. Murder was this big, loud, dramatic thing. But what Elephant did is it made murder not dramatic. Something that's done on an everyday level and is kind of quiet and silent and disposable. But Alan Clark and Danny Boyle, who are English, thought they were doing a good thing. What the film does is it portrays the everyday senseless violence and murder that was happening every fucking day in Belfast and in Derry and in Armagh. It portrayed this violence as it happens every single day. And I bet you Alan Clark and Danny Boyle thought, this is great, this is a real compassionate piece of work. But the problem is, there's no plot, there's no dialogue, there's nothing. It's just murder. And that viewpoint is a very particular English colonial view. It portrays the problem in the North as purely sectarian, purely motivated by violence and viciousness alone, and it removes all politics from it. It removes all politics and it removes the responsibility of the British state in what happened in the North of Ireland. Like, out of all the murders that happen in Elephant, there's no, like, British soldier who decides to just cock his gun up and shoot a child for no reason, because that shit happened. There's no British soldier who is looking at a peaceful protest and decides to open fire on unarmed civilians who are protesting for their civil rights. There's no British soldier who shoots somebody in the back because they got freaked out by a checkpoint. These are things that actually happened, but it's not portrayed in the film at all. There's no soldiers in the fucking film. Like, we now know that the British army had groups like the Military Reaction Force, which were British soldiers in plain clothes who would deliberately shoot civilians, whether they be Unionist or Nationalist, Protestant or Catholic, whatever the fuck. The British army in the early 70s used to do drive-by shootings on civilians to start sectarian war because the dominant narrative of the British state during the period of the Troubles was the fucking paddies are killing each other the fucking I don't know the Protestants the Catholics I'm not sure they're fucking mad violent paddies and they're just killing each other lads there's nothing we can do about it they're violent people and they're just killing each other and we're sending our soldiers over to, to keep the peace but there's nothing we can do these fucking paddies are killing each other and that was the dominant British narrative portray the whole thing as uncontrollable, exclusively sectarian violence and chaos and then the British state can wipe its hands and go there's nothing we can do about it we can send over some soldiers if you want but that's it, it's out of our hands we don't know why it's happening so the film Elephant kind of reinforces that view a bit by removing all politics from the film and just making it about murder, murder, murder even though it's a beautiful film now having said that don't like kick up your feet and get some popcorn on a Friday night with your boyfriend and decide to watch Elephant it's not one of those films watch Elephant on your own 
if you're the type of person who's interested in making films or seriously interested in cinema. If you want to watch something on a Friday night, I would suggest another film called Elephant that was made in 2003. So there's a film made in 2003 by the director Gus Van Zandt and this is called Elephant. And it's kind of about the Columbine Massacre. It's similar to the Columbine Massacre but it's fictional. And I think Gus Van Zandt was like, I've borrowed from the Danny Boyle film Elephant so heavily that I think I'm just going to have to call my film Elephant also. So Elephant, the 2003 film, is worth looking at because it's the same style. It's the same silence. There's a lot of silence. But Gus Van Zandt has introduced a sense of plot. So it's a very brutal and sad film. But you could actually watch watch this because there's a plot involved. Very depressing film. Deeply, deeply depressing and disturbing film. But there's a plot, there's a story. But up until now, like I said, the 1989 film Elephant was what would come to mind when I would think, Jesus, what, what have the Brits made that kind of got things a bit wrong? So I was doing some research for the podcast. And I was reading about the Big Bang. You know, the Big Bang, like how how the universe was fucking created. This idea that there was nothing and then all of a sudden there was this explosion and the entire universe was born and it's ever expanding. Because I always thought, Jesus, for something so important, you know, this is the accepted scientific theory about the origins of life and the universe and reality. For something so fucking important... The Big Bang is a bit of a silly name. It's a bit of a stupid name. How the fuck did we arrive at that? And the phrase was coined by an English astronomer by the name of Sir Fred Hoyle. And Sir Fred Hoyle actually didn't agree with the Big Bang at all. He thought it was a lot of horse shit. And when he was trying to take the piss out of this concept when it first emerged, he derisively referred to it as the Big Bang. As a joke... And then it stuck. So he ended up coining this phrase around a concept he completely disagreed with. Which is ironically kind of cruel. Because what he believed in was what you'd call panspermia. The idea that life has always been around and life was brought to earth by comets that had bacteria on them or whatever. These comets landed on earth. And that's where life comes from. And this Fred Heil fella, Sir Fred Heil... English astronomer born in 1915 he's a bit of a legend he also he's responsible for formulating the theory that stars such as the sun like create their energy from nuclear fusion and that this nuclear fusion creates all the chemical elements that we know Fred Hoyle also helped to he was very instrumental in advancing modern radar equipment during World War II so quite an impressive career. He died in 2001. But as I'm reading about fucking Fred Hoyle and all his massive scientific achievements as a scientist, there's like this other little section about science fiction that he wrote. So I'm like, oh yeah, fucking hell. Fair play, Fred. So you're an, you're an accomplished scientist and now you write science fiction as well. So I'm reading along about all the different books that he wrote. And then I see one book that he wrote in 1959 called Ossian's Ride. So I go, wonder what Ossian's Ride is about. It's a book about the dystopian future of 1970, 
where Ireland has become an authoritarian police state and global superpower because of a secret source of energy that's being developed in Kerry. So of course I nearly shat my pants with excitement and immediately tried to get myself a copy of this book called Ossian's Ride from 1959 which was very difficult to fucking find but I finally managed to get myself a hardback copy of it. It's not an original, it's a a second edition. It's not worth money because it's not a very popular book, it was kind of forgotten. But I'm like, yes, yes, I would like the book written by Sir Fred Hoyle about the dystopian future where Ireland has a secret source of fucking energy. Yes, I would like to read that. So that's what I'm going to do with this week's podcast, even though I'm 40 minutes in now and I should have had the fucking ocarina pause about 15 minutes ago. I'm going to have the ocarina pause and the second half of the podcast, I'm going to take you through the book Ossian's Ride, which is basically the British version of Blade Runner and it's shit. It's a terrible book and my job is to try and summarise the plot in such a way that I can make it entertaining. So let's have our ocarina pause now. I don't have the ocarina because I'm in my office. What I do have is a partially drank glass of water and a board marker that I use to write on my whiteboard for my schedule for the week. So I think what I'll do is I'm going to I'm going to tap the glass. But as I tap it, I might take a little drink from it to change the pitch of the sound and we'll see what that's like. So here's the board marker glass tapping drink water pause and you're going to hear an advert hey it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to Quince I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters sleek leather jackets fine jewelry and so much more with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands and they partner with factories that prioritize safe ethical and responsible manufacturing I love that luxury quality within reach go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order quince.com slash style Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. That didn't do much, to be honest. I was expecting a change in pitch. I don't know what's going on there. Support for this podcast comes from you, the listener, via the Patreon page. Patreon.com forward slash The Blind Boy Podcast. This podcast is my full-time job. This podcast is how I earn a living. I adore making this podcast. But it's a lot of work to make. It's a huge amount of research. And I can only do this podcast when it's my full-time job. If you enjoy this podcast, if it brings you some joy, some entertainment, some solace, if it gives you a little break in your week, just please consider paying me for the work that I'm doing. All I'm looking for is the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. That's it. If you listen to my podcast and you're going, 
Fuck it, if I met Blind Boy in real life, I'd buy him a pint. Well, you can, via the Patreon page. But if you can't afford that, don't worry about it. Because the person who can afford it is paying for you to listen for free. So everybody gets a podcast, I get to earn a living. Patreon.com forward slash the Blind Boy podcast. Patreon also keeps this podcast fully independent. I do have advertisers on the podcast, but they don't get to dictate what the fuck I say. They can go fuck themselves. And they advertise on this podcast on my terms. So I get to do that because I'm independently funded through Patreon, which is getting more and more difficult in this modern podcast space where big money is taking it over and pushing small independent creators down. One thing I got to mention this week too, um... This is an Acast podcast. So Acast is the network I put this podcast out on. But last week, Acast had to shut down their app. So the Acast app to listen to podcasts doesn't exist anymore. So if you are a listener who used to subscribe to me on Acast or whatever, please consider subscribing to me on whatever other app you listen to podcasts on. I don't know why the Acast app shut down. It's That's a negative thing. But I'm guessing because the big boys in podcasting, such as Spotify, are taking over the market. So that now makes it even more difficult for independent podcasters because when you listen to podcasts on Spotify, they just fucking promote their own podcasts to the top of the charts and independent podcasters get buried. So if you were listening to this on Acast and now the Acast app is gone, please subscribe to this podcast and leave reviews on other podcast apps because that app being gone is is a shitty thing for independent creators who were using Acast as their app. I will be on Twitch this Thursday twitch.tv forward slash the blind by podcast doing my never ending video game musical. I haven't been on Twitch in two weeks because I'm an incredibly busy boy. The pandemic is over. I'm working on a new book. I'm not stuck at home all the time. Sometimes my Thursday nights are taken up by work. So I'm not as fully consistent every Thursday night as I was during the pandemic, but I'm trying to be. So this book, Ossian's Ride, written by Fred Hoyle in 1959, which depicts the dystopian future of 1970, in which Ireland has become a technological superpower with a secret source of energy. It's not a great book. It's not very well written. There's quite a lot of kind of schooled by errors in the mechanics of the fiction basically the ideas are there there's some great ideas in there there's a good bit of creativity in there but just simple things around storytelling aren't present for instance Fred Hoyle will he'll introduce quite a lot of characters but he'll just give the characters name and he won't if you're writing a book and you're introducing a character in that book, you really have to make the reader feel and know that character. Your job as a writer is, when you introduce a character, your reader has to really see that character in their mind, really get a feeling for what they look like, how they sound, how they respond to things emotionally. The character has to live inside your head so you can care about them. This doesn't happen a lot in this book because he just introduced new names and says, here's a new character called Donal and he's got a Cork accent and that's it. When you do that a lot, 
your reader doesn't care about the character that you're speaking about and they become forgettable. The pacing of the book is a bit off. You know, it speeds up, it slows down. It's hard to kind of predict what's going to happen, which is an important part when, you know, when you're reading a book or watching anything. The audience kind of wants a sense that they know what's going to happen next. And you can either go with that or you can surprise them. But ultimately, when you're reading a book, you need to feel like the author knows what they're doing here and I'm willing to give over my sense of belief to them so they can take me on this journey. You don't have that with this book. It was hard to read. You know a book is hard to read when you find yourself having to reread pages over and over again just to see what the fuck is going on or wondering if you skipped a page when you haven't. So first off, the historical context of a an English par- person writing a book about Ireland in 1959. What was Ireland like in 1959? Well, in 1959, Ireland was what you'd call a developing country. The official Republic of Ireland, I think, was less than 10 years old. We were an incredibly poor, incredibly poor country that was recovering from 800 years of colonisation from the English. The 26 counties of, of the Republic of Ireland down south incredibly poor huge amounts of emigration most young Irish people weren't staying in the country they were going to either England or to America there would have been huge amounts of Irish immigration in England there would have been massive amounts of anti-Irish racism and discrimination against Irish people in England so why in 1959 is the concept of a book where Ireland becomes an advanced technological superpower. Why is that so preposterous an idea for a sci-fi book? Because the English viewed us as very, very stupid people. They didn't view us as a country that they'd just colonised, that they had removed culture from, language from, that they had brutalised through war and terror. They didn't view us as a country that they had damaged. They viewed us as thick, pig-ignorant, stupid cunts who have a backwards, poor country with zero infrastructure because we are thick, pig-ignorant, stupid cunts. So the idea of what if, in 11 years, the paddies have better roads than us? What if the paddies have more money than us? What if the paddies become more advanced through science? What if the thick fuckers figure out science? That's what this book is. But I can tell by Fred Hoyle, as he's writing it, he doesn't actually think that he's being anti-Irish, that he's being racist. The book comes across as having quite a, a nice view of Ireland, of it being a very beautiful place, with a people that are deeply connected to the land. But the theme of it is, the Irish become corrupted by money and technological advancement and it's a deeply offensive book the word uh, thug or thuggery is used quite frequently in the book to refer to the Irish Ireland is seen as a violent brutish land of very dumb thugs who have gotten their hands on some advanced shit they don't understand The word thug is a particularly insidious word. The word thug is used today 
in US media to refer to African American people. Like if you hear the word thug used today on American media, and you see it in fucking Irish and English media too, when you see the word thug, basically that's a journalist who wants to use the N-word but they can't, so they use the word thug instead. But the word thug was also used against the Irish and it's present throughout this book in the 1950s. You also have to remember too, you know, what what would the... So British people are just seeing loads and loads of these Irish immigrants. Irish immigrants in the 1950s would have been unskilled, uneducated labourers mainly. They would have been working on building sites. You would have had the trauma, collective trauma of poverty and colonialism, meaning that you would have had high rates of addiction with Irish people. So the Irish people in London were frequently working on building sites, getting drunk. There had been a lot of huge amount of homeless people in England who were Irish, who also had addiction struggles. This would have been reflected in the media, the English media about the Irish at, at the time as well. Also, you had the IRA. Now, the IRA of the 1950s, they weren't the provisional IRA of the 1970s. So the IRA of the 1950s were a little bit more disorganised and not as threatening or dangerous. So the IRA of the 1950s, they used to plant bombs in England, but mainly what they would bomb would be like power lines and power stations. So the IRA hadn't it hadn't been like, it wasn't like the 1970s yet where you had the provisional IRA who were actually hitting civilian targets and creating terror. In the 1950s, the IRA were bombing train tracks and pylons and power stations. They were attacking the modern infrastructure of Great Britain, which at best was annoying. So the Brits would have viewed the Irish as thick, dumb fucks who get too drunk and then they bomb our electricity stations out of jealousy because they haven't got any of their own. Like, as an act of physical force republicanism, bombing a pylon in fucking Coventry isn't going to do much other than piss the Brits off. So that also contributed to a narrative of they hate technology they're like Luddites coupled with the fact too that Ireland in the 1950s wasn't particularly interested in international trade we were recovering from colonialism you had a dominant narrative in the country that modernity and modernisation was a little bit too British so let's just focus on being an agrarian society that's deeply religious we hadn't even we hadn't joined the EU yet so, with that background in mind, writing a, a, an English person, Sir Fred Hoyle, an astronomer, writing a science fiction book about Ireland becoming an advanced technological society, a superpower, this was fucking bonkers. And it was both serious science fiction and also probably considered to be not satire, but humorous to the middle class English audience that it was written for. Like, there's a big difference there. If it was satire, then it would be calling power into question. Satire would be the work of Flann O'Brien. If you read the work of Flann O'Brien, such as The Third Policeman, 
Flann O'Brien, and he was doing this in the 30s, he would have rural Irish characters, like guards and farm labourers, people who you wouldn't consider to be educated. Flann O'Brien, who was Irish, would write these characters and then he would have them talking about advanced concepts, uh, scientific theories such as atomic theory. Now, what Flann O'Brien was doing there is he was using satire. He was kind of, as an Irish person, asking the question, why can't Irish people talk about science? Who says we're stupid? And he was using that absurdity to create satire. What Fred Hoyle was doing is he was laughing at the Irish. He was punching down. This book is, isn't it hilarious, but also kind of terrifying, that Paddy has figured out something in science that the rest of the world doesn't know about. Like what, what this book Ocean's Ride is quite, what it reminds me of is the Marvel comic uh, Black Panther. Now I don't know a hell of a lot about fucking Marvel or DC or any of that shit so I'm not going to go into it in depth. But one thing I do know about Black Panther is it's centred around the fictional area known as Wakanda which is in the middle of Africa. And in Wakanda the people there have discovered this source of energy that makes them an incredibly advanced civilization. But what I don't like about that is it was written by it was written by two white American men and what I don't like about it is that the irony of Wakanda is that oh my god isn't it mad that in the middle of Africa which is a country that we see to be a developing country that isn't advanced at all isn't it mad that they have this advanced scientific discovery isn't that incredible it relies upon the assumption that Africa is backwards which I don't like because that negates and erases the harmful effects of colonisation that creates trauma and poverty. So with the book Oshian's Ride, it's basically Wakanda before Wakanda, except it's in Kerry. First off, why is the book called Oshian's Ride? Well, Oshian is the anglicised version of the Irish name Oshin. And within Irish mythology, Oshin was a mythical character who reached the land of Tirnanog the land of eternal youth a, la- a utopian land and this is it's a lovely concept within Irish mythology of the, there being this other world that's completely perfect and no one ages and no one is in need of food it's like the Garden of Eden but it exists outside of time it's like in the Bible the Garden of Eden is something that happened long ago but in Irish mythology Tiernanog isn't really long ago it's something outside of time which I find quite beautiful because it's mythology that's not limited by the concept of linear time. So Fred Hoyle would have been very aware of the story of Oshin and the land of Tiernanog. He would have been completely aware of this. That's why he called his book Oshin's Ride. Oshin's Ride. So to an extent Fred Hoyle admires Irish mythology and he has an admiration of Ireland Fred Hoyle thinks he's writing a nice book but the thing is is that he doesn't realise that his best intentions are actually horrendously racist and horrendously colonial in their views so let's try and summarise the book for you the book starts when a young scientist by the name of Thomas Sherwood is suddenly called in by like 
the British government. The British government, he's a young scientist in, in Cambridge, I think. And the British government call him in and say, here, there's something happening over in fucking Ireland, man. They have some type of advanced technology that the Yanks are interested in, the Russians are interested in. We don't know what's going on, but Paddy's after figuring out some shit. And we need you to go on a mission to Ireland to find out what it is. Now, what's interesting is that this central English character is called Thomas Sherwood. Sherwood is a very clear indication that represents Sherwood Forest. Sherwood Forest was where Robin Hood lived. And Robin Hood is a character from British mythology. He robbed from the rich and gave them to the poor. Robin Hood is a chivalrous character. He is a good person in English mythology. He also, the book mentions that Thomas Sherwood comes from a yeoman stock, which is like landed farming people. It's like a medieval way to say middle class. Not a peasant, but not completely wealthy either. Robin Hood was also yeoman stock. So we know that the central character of this book, he represents English Anglo-Saxon mythology and goodness. So Thomas Sherwood is called in to a department. Let's call it MI5. I don't know what the name of it is in the book. And they say, look, Sherwood, right, here's the crack. Over in Ireland, in the area around Cork and Kerry, something's happening there, right? The Irish, we think they're after figuring out how to get some type of advanced energy that comes from turf. So the Irish are after figuring this out. They've also managed to make a type of contraceptive pill from turf. Now that bit goes nowhere in the book. They just mentioned at the start that the Irish have figured out an energy source and they're making contraceptive pills. And the contraceptive pills are never mentioned at any point after that, which is bad writing because you don't just throw that in there. But I'm guessing it's for, that's for the English audience to get a laugh. The Irish are backwards. They have too many children. They can't stop fucking each other. They're Catholics. Isn't it hilarious that this country that's run by mad priests has now got the contraceptive pill and they're making it from turf. Ha 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 ha. So that's a joke there for the English people. But then it gets serious and the boss of MI5 says to Sherwood, look, we think the Irish are after discovering thermonuclear power. We think they have a thermonuclear reactor. Now, thermonuclear reactor is nuclear fusion. Nuclear fusion is a, a real... A real thing that society is still trying to achieve. Now it's interesting that the writer Fred Hoyle, because like I said, this is a serious scientist, he formulated the theory that the sun, the stars, make its energy from nuclear fusion. So even today, if you look up nuclear fusion reactor, this is like society's hope of having unlimited power in real life right now. So for Fred Hoyle to be talking about nuclear fusion reactors in 1959, I gotta give him points for that. That's some seriously good, ahead of its time science fiction writing from the person who discovered that stars create power from nuclear fusion. Nuclear power that we have is nuclear fission. It smashes nuclear atoms together, but it creates a lot of nuclear waste. So that's why nuclear power right now that we use is kind of harmful and problematic. It's like, yes, we can use nuclear power, but it creates all this radioactive waste and we don't know where to put it. So nuclear power right now isn't clean. The goal of humanity is to create nuclear fusion or cold fusion as it's known, which is how can we, in a nuclear reactor, create a tiny little sun? 
So you basically have massive, massive amounts of energy created and not a lot of waste. We still haven't created nuclear fusion. We're ahead of a lot closer to it than we were in the 1950s. If someone figures out how to do nuclear fusion, that might solve the problem of energy in the world today. But anyway, in this book, MI5 is going, we think Ireland's after figuring out fucking nuclear fusion, right? And we're worried that they're two steps away from inventing a fucking nuclear bomb. So Thomas Sherwood is sent on this mission over to Ireland to investigate how is Paddy making all this power. What they do know is that there's an organisation called ICE which is centred around Kerry and Cork and it's the Industrial Corporation of ERA. So Thomas Sherwood has to infiltrate Ireland secretly and find out about the Industrial Corporation of ERA. But the thing is, Ireland is now an authoritarian police state and British people aren't welcome. So while Thomas Sherwood, who's this young Cambridge scientist, a lovely polite man, he leaves England now and all of a sudden he finds himself in Ireland. And this is when it starts getting a bit offensive because the English character now has to go through the rigorous process of Irish immigration where he's brutalised and interrogated and asked for his papers and made to feel terrified. And this is, like I mentioned, this is the British writer unconsciously projecting onto the Irish the things that the British did to us. Fred Hoyle, the writer, was in the army in World War II. His da was in the army in World War I. So you can bet that Fred Hoyle, as a middle-class English person, grew up with stories from his da, his da's friends, or from other army people when he was in the British army. He grew up with all the stories about the British soldiers in Ireland in the 1920s. And I tell you how I know this, because of the very obscure and strange place names that Fred Hoyle uses throughout the book. So, Fred Hoyle's character of Thomas Sherwood, he gets to Dublin. Now in Dublin, he's incredibly safe. Dublin is almost English. He spends time in Dublin, he plays cricket in Trinity College. This is a safe place. But then outside of Dublin, this is beyond the pale. When you hear that phrase, beyond the pale, outside of Dublin and Kildare, traditionally amongst English people, was seen as the savage land. This is where an English person could get killed. This is where it was ungovernable, where the savage monkey Paddy lived. And when the character of Thomas Sherwood, early in the book, is describing the area where he needs to go to see where the Irish have this advanced turf nuclear fusion technology, the place names that he names, they're a little bit strange. He names Copine, Dunmanway and Macroom in Cork. Now these are very small, obscure places in West Cork. What fucking business? There's a British person in 1959. Why would he even know about these places? I'll tell you why he knows about them. Because those place names struck utter fear and terror into the hearts of British soldiers who had to serve in Ireland during the 1920s. Dunmanway, Macroom, Copine, 
These were areas of West Cork where there was massive IRA guerrilla activity. These were the areas, like I mentioned, my grandfather was in the IRA. He was in Tom Barry's flying column. In 1921, they shot 17 British officers. 17 British officers were shot in West Cork. These are posh people who got shot. Posh British officers don't get killed in Ireland. They did in West Cork in 1921. So names such as McCroom, Dunmanway and Copine resonated amongst the British officer class as terrifying places where officers meet their death. And that's why I think Fred Hoyle, who would have been speaking to his dad who was in World War I, all the fucking officers and admirals and whoever the fuck he was speaking to when he was in the army himself, these names rang a bell. This is terror land. This is where the thugs are. This is where the IRA are. This is where British men of good stock go to die. So it's no surprise to me that in the fucking book, in the dystopian future of 1970, places like Copine and Dunmanway are where the Irish have the nuclear reactor. So as the character of Thomas Sherwood now leaves the pale, he leaves the safety of Dublin to go down to the terrifying south of Ireland towards West Cork and Kerry. What he starts to describe are giant motorways. Giant motorways that put the roads in England to shame. The concept and idea of the Irish having massive motorways as big as the ones in America was so terrifying and strange and odd to the British in 1959 that it merited science fiction. While he's on a bus and marvelling at the giant motorways of Ireland, the bus is suddenly pulled over by the authoritarian Irish police force and he's dragged out of his bus and he's pushed around and his papers are demanded. And when I read, and when I read in this fucking book about this terrifying ordeal that the British character has to go through in this dystopian future, all I'm hearing is this is how the Black and Tans treated the Irish. This is, how, this is what the Black and Tans did, the British soldiers did to the Irish when they were just going about their lives. You'd, walk, you'd try and walk to the shop and you'd get stopped. you get stopped, you get asked for your papers, give the wrong answer and you're going to get shot. That was the reality that was Irish people were living in. That was the reality at the time in the north of Ireland too. But the, the writer Fred Hoyle isn't aware of that. He's not being satirical. What's happened is he has internalised the stories of the brutality of the British Empire in Ireland. He knows them in the back of his mind but he hasn't taken ownership or responsibility for it so now like in Blade Runner where the Americans are thinking of the future of oh Los Angeles is going to be full of fucking Chinese signs and Japanese writing and we'll be fucked Fred Hoyle is doing the exact same he is saying oh my god imagine I went to Ireland and they treated me the way we treated them but he doesn't know he's doing it so the Irish police let Thomas Sherwood off. They don't know that he's a secret British agent trying to find out about where this nuclear reactor is in Kerry. They leave him off and then he goes about his journey. And then the plot is very bad now. Then all of a sudden he finds himself in a woods and he discovers uh, the body of a dead boy. No, he discovers a, a lad of about 18 who's dying and he's been left there and he's been brutalised by the Irish police. And he tries his best to save the boy, but he dies. 
the boy's death doesn't seem to matter. All it does is it serves to to get us to care about the central character of Thomas Sherwood. It shows him to be a force for good because he cares about a dying boy. Five minutes later, he meets an Irish woman called Kathleen and it turns out that she's the sister of the dead boy. And then the plot thickens. It turns out the dead boy had been smuggling secrets about the Irish nuclear reactor and the hidden source of Irish power. He'd been smuggling these secrets out and trying to give them to his sister. Now Thomas Sherwood has to tell the sister, oh no, I found your brother dead in the woods. She gets hysterical. And then after he calms her down, she pulls out a lot of papers. And these papers are basically secret research that her, bro- her dead brother had given him. Then, all of a sudden, they're chased by... <laughs> all of a sudden, they're chased by police and priests... And giant tractors. So giant technologically advanced bogger tractors chase them all the way through the countryside. And now, because he's got the secret hidden documents, and it's so fucking ridiculous because the thing is, is it's not presented as comedy at all, but it is comedy. He's being chased by fucking priests and guards on a fucking tractor because he can't imagine the Irish and anything else. And uh, he escapes them anyway. Oh wait, no, he doesn't. To confuse the tractors, he gets all the secret scientific papers that Kathleen's brother had smuggled and he throws them at the tractors to confuse them. Then Kathleen gets irrational again and says, why did you do that? Why did you throw my brother's papers that he smuggled out at the tractors? And he goes, because it was the clever thing to do. They were either going to catch us and take the papers, but now they're going to spend hours looking for them because I spread them all over the field. And then she said, why couldn't you just stay and fight like a man? And this hurt him deeply. This really hurt him. Because he sees himself as a civilised uh, civilized English Cambridge fucking mathematician. And he, he won't reduce himself to the brutality of the Irish. But this woman, Kathleen, is only impressed by violence. Because she's a paddy. So anyway, all of a sudden they're in Tipperary. It doesn't really explain how they got to Tipperary. Oh no, Kathleen leaves him and he goes to Tipperary on his own. And while he's in Tipperary... He's terrified of the hostile countryside and all the Irish people around him. And he eventually finds a house to try and stay in. So he goes to the house and he says, I'm just a poor English student, please let me stay in your house. But the woman who owns the house says, no, we've no more room. But then all of a sudden, a very friendly priest turns up and says, you can stay here, don't worry, you can stay here, uh, Thomas Sherwood. But you're going to have to sleep up in the attic with tiny... So this is where things get deeply, deeply offensive. So Thomas Sherwood now is staying in this house in Tipperary. And suddenly he realises that this priest that's there that let him stay in the gaff. He's able to have an intelligent conversation with this priest. And he and the priest start speaking about the organisation known as ICE. The Industrial Corporation of ERA and what they're doing. And he engages in this intellectual discussion where... The priest is saying it's a bad thing that Ireland has not this new technological power and wealth. We were better off when we were poor and free. That's an exact quote. So the theme of the novel starts to emerge. Where Fred Hoyle, the writer, who used to use Ireland as a holiday destination. He's basically saying that the subtext is Ireland was better when it was colonised. When the people were free and didn't have to look after themselves 
and they were more connected with the land and connected with their mythology, this was much better. He's basically suggesting that the Irish were more free as a people under British rule because all we had to worry about was our land and that was it and the British looked after all the complicated stuff. Now to make things worse, the character of Thomas Sherwood starts to wonder, fuck me, how am I able to have such a clear cognizant conversation with this priest? And then he goes, ah, he's Church of Ireland, he's a Protestant, of course, it's a Protestant priest, that's why I can have an educated conversation with him. So then, Thomas Sherwood goes up to the attic, and that's where Tiny comes in. Tiny is a gigantic man from Tipperary. Now this is the most racist shit in the entire book. Tiny is described throughout as a fucking gorilla. Now it's clearly a human because he smokes cigarettes all the time and he puts his hands in his pocket but the character Thomas Sherwood only refers to Tiny as a giant gorilla and now he has to sleep up there in the attic and we're subtly led to believe that Thomas Sherwood's fear is that the giant ape Tiny wants to rape him. Now this is a common trope that you will see in cinema and in books. You'll see this a lot in American media. Um, when the white character gets sent to a prison in America, they use the trope of Bubba, which is basically, you'll see it in a lot of films. The white man is sent to jail and then he has to share a cell with a large black man and the subtext is male rape is going to occur or brutalisation of some description. You'll also see it in the film Whitnail and I, where Richard E. Grant is in the Irish pub and all of a sudden he's confronted by a gigantic Irish man. Now the reason the character of Tiny in this book is so offensive is historically the British caricatures and cartoons of Irish people were as apes. We were portrayed as monkeys, gorillas and apes. Brutal animals who know nothing other than violence and must be controlled. So the character of Tiny in this book who's just a large man from Tipperary, is referred to consistently as a violent gorilla. Also, the fact that the word gorilla is used, gorilla has two meanings. There's gorilla referring to the ape, but there's also gorilla warfare. And he is in the land of gorilla warfare. He is in the land of outside the pale, where British soldiers during the Irish War of Independence were killed via gorilla warfare. So there's a double meaning going on. What makes it even more insidious then is it turns out the friendly priest, the Protestant priest that was in the house that appeared to be helping Thomas Sherwood along turns out that he's actually a secret agent of ICE and that this Protestant priest controls Tiny the Gorilla. So the Protestant priest who's all smart and well able to talk at the click of his fingers he can set the dumb fuck paddy thick cunt gorilla on Thomas Sherwood at any time. <laughs> so there you have the underlying terrible racist colonial narrative. And the narrative there is, right, here's the crack with the Irish. You've got the Protestants, right? Now they're smart. They're smart. They're almost British, but they're fucking still paddies. So even though the Protestant priest is well able to talk and he can speak English and he's well read, watch out for those cunts because they control the mad Irish Catholic apes who want to rip you to shreds, they fucking control them. That's the narrative that's been presented in the book. I'll read you some direct quotes 
about interactions between Thomas Sherwood and Tiny, the poor man from Tipperary. Oh, he's just a poor man from Tipperary who's six foot three, that's all he is. So Thomas Sherwood is sharing the attic with him. And he goes, You bloody great ape! I yelled, for it was Tiny. He had sneaked up absolutely silently behind me and had groped me with huge hands. Now he burst into bellows of laughter. So Tiny is this unpredictable, giant, violent ape of a man that can be controlled at any moment by the Protestant priest. Here's how he describes sleeping in the room. The night was at best unpleasant and at worst terrifying. Eventually the gorilla decided to turn in. His bed came between mine and the door. I noticed. The light went out. I lay listening to his breathing to make sure that he didn't get out of bed. Nothing happened for maybe an hour. Then very stealthily he did get out. I heard him prowling almost silently about the room and I had the horrible certainty that he was going to seize me again. So Thomas Sherwood is in bed, terrified of being assaulted by a fucking ape who's actually just a man from Tipperary. So the night goes on like that. Then they wake up in the morning and when Thomas Sherwood goes downstairs, the whole atmosphere changes and now he's been interrogated by the Protestant priest and the Protestant priest is like, what are you doing here? What do you want to find out? Who are you? And Thomas Sherwood is like, I'm not talking, I'm not talking. And then the Protestant priest goes, we have made ways of making you talk. So then, all of a sudden the Protestant priest arrives out with that Kathleen girl from earlier. And we're not told exactly what happens, but the Protestant priest says, we have ways of making you talk. They drag Kathleen into a room. All the book describes is you hear her screams. The priest has done something to Kathleen. I'm not going to mention what it is, but it's horrendous. So this has been used to try and get information out of Thomas Sherwood. So Thomas Sherwood now, he spent all his time being composed with the Irish. You know, trying to understand the Irish, not being violent. But now that they've turned on Kathleen... He's now reduced to their level of violence. Now the British, who don't want to interfere in any way, now he's reduced to their level. So Thomas Sherwood punches Tiny into the throat and then bashes his head against the ground and kills him, rescues Kathleen and then throws two bottles of whiskey into the fucking house sets them on fire and burns the priest to death which is the most ridiculous anti-Irish fantasy so he's he's killed the Irish ape man by punching him in the throat and then he made a Molotov cocktail out of a bottle of whiskey and burnt the priest to death and what was the quote? That would be the last cocktail the priest would ever drink burning Irish people with whiskey so he escapes with Kathleen who is deeply deeply traumatised because something awful has happened to her in that room with the priest Kathleen is traumatised Thomas Sherwood doesn't really give a fuck she's just a hysterical woman he helps her overcome her trauma by continually feeding her sandwiches now what the fuck that's about so Kathleen successfully overcomes the trauma of whatever happened by eating sandwiches now both of them all of a sudden are driving around Ireland in a Chevrolet which again is that's hilarious the concept and idea of a Chevrolet being in Ireland a big American car haha isn't that mad so they're driving up and down the 
vast motorways of the technologically advanced Ireland in their Chevrolet, trying to get down to Cork and Kerry to infiltrate the technological area of Kerry so he can get to the bottom of how the Irish people have got advanced nuclear technology. Kathleen, Kathleen, they they finally get to the, the border of Kerry. They have to cross over into the forbidden land of the technological zone. Kathleen, what does she do? It's worth noting as well. Her name is Kathleen, but Kathleen is, is, isn't too far removed from the word Colleen. Colleen would be a word, it, it's the Irish for girl, but it's a word that English and American people would use to refer to a beautiful Irish girl. So her name, Colleen and Kathleen, is similar. She ends up double-crossing him because women are bitches in this universe. She kisses him and runs away in some type of double-cross. This is a horrendous book. All of a sudden he finds himself wandering around Clare. The geography in this thing is fucking all over the gaff. Like it is, in one minute he's in Tip, then he's in Kerry, now he's in Clare. He spent some time in Kilkee. Fucking bizarre. The car is gone, I don't know where the car went. And then he re- <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is the bit in the book where he goes native. So Thomas Sherwood, the English middle class scientist, after spending weeks walking around Clare, in the mud soon realises that he's so filthy and so dirty from muck and rain that he starts to pass for an Irish person he's gone native and this is how he infiltrates the technological zone of Kerry by being a filthy dirty person and when Irish people see him they say Asher tis yourself so I'm going to leave out a load of details because the story really is that bad that I don't want to I don't want to tell him because it's a bad book. So long story short, he makes it to the advanced technological city of Kerry, which he describes as a perfect utopia of science, more advanced than any city in the world, and it's impossible to get into. Unless you look like a filthy, dirty paddy, then you can get into it nice and easily. Eventually, he finds himself in a house with a load of scientists who work for this ICE corporation. And when he's there... They think that he's Irish because he's so dirty, but he's in a predicament. He wants to speak to the scientists about science. So how can he do this while also being Irish? And then he figures out, he says it. Ah, I'm actually from Dublin. I'm actually from Dublin and I'm studying in Trinity College. So, even though he's filthy and stinking and dirty, when they ask why his accent is English, he's like, Well, I'm from Dublin, so that's kind of like the same as English anyway. So, these people are all the scientists that control ICE. None of them are Irish. They're all, the main one is English. So, this is the worst part. You get to the end of the fucking book, and you're kind of thinking, well, at at least are there some smart Irish people? And then you realise, no, the people who are causing this scientific advancement in Kerry they're all international scientists, right? And these scientists have gathered in Kerry to create this scientific utopia because the rest of the world has too much rules and regulations. So they're here in Kerry creating loads and loads of employment, but it's ultimately not Irish people who are behind the ingenuity. That's the shittest, most insulting part of the whole book. So long story short, they've figured out nuclear fusion they're making some type of fusion reactor the bit at the start of the book about contraceptive pills and turf that doesn't go anywhere 
which is really bad writing that goes nowhere. They've figured out how to make nuclear fusion from the water around the coast of Kerry. He almost suddenly stops being a British agent at this point and the scientists offer him a job in Kerry and he says yeah. So now at the end of the book the bit where he was like sent over on behalf of the British government to infiltrate Ireland that kind, that bit's kind of gone and now he's like happily working as a scientist in Kerry in this technological utopia working on nuclear fusion. He kind of rationalises that the police state in Ireland is okay if it means protecting the secrets of the advanced technology. And then the book ends when it turns out that all, all these this small group of international scientists who are based in Kerry who have discovered nuclear fusion the book ends by basically saying they're not humans at all they're an alien race who came from a dying planet and they figured out how to send their brains into the brains of human scientists and they've figured out eternal youth or some shit like that so you kind of get this there's this loose impression that it's somehow that, that their civilization, their alien civilization that's off in the distant stars, you kind of get the impression that it's somehow related to Tyrion and Og a little bit, but not really, just as a way to tie up the story. So it ends with him on a beach trying to fuck an alien called Fanny. And that's about it. And a bunch of questions are left unanswered. It takes a mad turn. It's a poorly written book. And the fact that it's set in Ireland, there's really no point or purpose to it. There's no, it could this this could have been set anywhere. It's just it really relied upon the post-colonial narrative that Irish people are so backward and stupid and the country is so backward that isn't it mad and preposterous and worthy of science fiction that Ireland is the place where they have secret advanced technology but then you get to it and the Irish actually have nothing to do with it the Irish are just being given jobs by this advanced technological corporation of aliens the main one called Fanny who he tries to ride on a beach so that's the book Oshian's Ride Um. Not a good book. Having said that, I would love to see John Carpenter make it into a film. 1980s John Carpenter, I would love to see him make that into a film. There's enough in there to save the plot and make something utterly bizarre. I chose to read it as a comedy because it's fucking hilarious. It's hilarious. But it's not supposed to be hilarious in the way that I'm laughing at it. What makes it so grating is that you genuinely get the sense that Fred Hoyle was trying to write a good book I don't think Fred Hoyle felt that he was being mean to the people of Ireland he just had a huge amount of racist oppressive colonial ideas about Ireland and Irish people that were so ingrained in him his way of thinking and his culture that he didn't question him and he has the the concept of the, the noble savage that Ireland is 
a beautiful land that the people of Ireland are kind of more animal than human and that they deserve to be connected with the land to let to be roam free like cattle. He believes that knowledge and wealth and technological advancement are a terrible burden for the Irish people to have that they shouldn't concern themselves with these modern things. Forget about that. That's for us. That's for the great British Empire. Um, there's a terrible fucking... One thing that made me put down the book out of anger is there's a conversation between Thomas Sherwood and that Protestant priest where the priest basically says this technology and wealth in Ireland is a terrible thing. As soon as this wealth and technology came to Ireland, the police here became authoritarian. And he said, before this stuff, there were never any police patrols. There was never anyone getting checked for papers. There was never any brutality. The people were free. That's, that's deeply offensive because Fred Hoyle genuinely is, is not realising that he's describing what actually happened in Ireland. In Ireland, Ireland was a fucking police state. It was under martial law. The police were invented. The fucking constabulary, the first ever police in the world, were invented by the British in Ireland. The first ever constabulary. Before the concept of police, you had soldiers. And what the British found, I think it was around 1830, the Brits were like, we can't have all these soldiers in Ireland. We need to create a new force. And this new force, they're kind of they're kind of like soldiers, but they're not. They have guns and they patrol, but they're not in the army. Let's make up a new word called constabulary. They're keepers of the peace. The modern police system was invented by the British in Ireland. The writer Fred Hoyle, who was in the army, whose dad was in the army, who's a knight, Sir Fred Hoyle, a member of the British upper class, has no awareness of the history of brutality in Ireland whatsoever. Even though he's been hearing all the stories from soldiers, he's chosen to hear it in a different way. And his narrative is, which is the colonial narrative, the Irish people are savage apes. They are vicious fucking animals that need to be herded and controlled and the British presence in Ireland was only there to control these wild animals and if you turn your back the Anglo-Irish Protestants who are smart and intelligent because they're effectively British but they've gone kind of native if you turn your back on the paddy ape then the Protestant will rile him up they control him And throughout the book, the Irish are presented as being deliberately confusing. So we're both both completely thick, but also have the ability to use our stupidity to confuse. And this is one of the issues throughout the book that makes the character of Thomas Sherwood, when he's trying to get down to Kerry to figure out how we have this great nuclear reactor, One of the things that's continually in his way as a scientist is that the Irish have figured out a way to release misinformation about their scientific technology. That the Irish are using their capacity and ability to be both stupid and to pretend to be stupid to confuse the British. And that's an opinion that exists about the Irish by the British because of how we speak English. 
and I've always maintained this. We speak Hiberno English, so English was a language that was forced upon us. Gaelic was outlawed completely, so Irish people speak English in a way that was forced upon us. So often, the way that we speak English, we have grammatical structures that are more related to Irish. So we end up saying sentences that don't really make sense in the Queen's English. We'll say something like, are you going to the shop you are? So we've asked and answered our own question. This is how we speak English, because it was forced upon us. But often, the British ear hears how we speak English as deliberately confusing. So we get called either stupid or crafty. So all of these prejudices. The fact that Fred Hoyle considered it completely appropriate to have a... a, The only character in that book. Like I mentioned at the the start of the, the podcast, I said that one of the flaws of this book is that he continually introduces characters and just calls them by their name. And then you can't keep track of the characters because you don't know what they look like and you don't care about them. The only fucking character in this book, other than Thomas Sherwood, who's given any real depth, is Tiny. Tiny, the gorilla, who's like I said, is just a man from Tipperary, who's large. His hatred, and he uses the word hatred multiple times, his hatred of Tiny, the gorilla... His consistent descriptions of him as a large brute. His attention to detail. This character that he has reduced to an old Irish caricature of the savage ape. His hatred of him is so much that this is the only other character you care about because it's the only character he's spoken about in any detail. Tiny the Gorilla is seen as, in this book, Thomas Sherwood is is terrified of Tiny the Gorilla for two reasons. Number one, he's afraid of being brutalised or sexually assaulted by him. Number two, he's terrified of turning into him. And at the end of the book, when Thomas Sherwood commits acts of violence, he's reminded of Tiny. It's like he... Thomas Sherwood can't take responsibility for his own acts of violence. Instead... He caught violence off Tiny. And that there is a narrative that British forces have used in Ireland to justify colonialism for years. We're not violent. We didn't want to shoot. The paddies are just too violent. What did you want us to do? We're a peacekeeping force. These people are animals. And when they jump out of their cage, we're in danger and we have to shoot in self-defence. Every single toxic narrative of colonialism is present in this book. Unquestioning by a writer who thinks that he's doing a nice thing because he clearly has an interest in Irish mythology. He clearly loves the story of Oisin and Tiernanog. He makes mention of the Fianna and I think he mentions Fionn McCool. He's well read on Irish mythology. He loves the countryside. He thinks he has a love of the people, but really he wants to control and subjugate them. Ultimately, it's a science fiction book about an absurd dystopian future where Ireland is technologically advanced and he doesn't even give us the credit of being the reason that that technological advancement exists. It's aliens who've put their brains into English scientists. 
So that's my review of Oshian's Ride. Jesus Christ, that's a 98 minute podcast. So that was that was post-colonial analysis. I love doing post-colonial analysis. It's my favourite type of analysis. It helps, it helps me to understand the world and power structures. And also, and I hate that I have to fucking point this out. None of that is anti-British or anti-British people. Fucking none of it. British people, English people, whatever the fuck you want to call them, are my fellow human beings and I love them just as much as I love any other fucking human being. What I'm calling out and speaking about there are the power structures of colonialism invented by very rich and powerful people to extract and control resources around the world. And colonialism convinces the poor people of one country that the poor people of another country are their enemy. And that same toxicity is also directed from the upper class of England, historically, towards the working class of England and the peasant class. Not as bad as the country that's being colonised, but yeah, that that podcast there was not anti-British in any way. It was a deconstruction of colonial ideology. That's what it was. So I think Ossian's Ride is the... That's the British Blade Runner. That's, that's it right there. It's the unconscious and ignorant fear of revenge projected onto the previously colonised people. All right, I'm going to say dog bless... That was a roaring hot take. I thoroughly enjoyed doing that. That was a long hot take. I hope you didn't mind the podcast being that long. I needed to get that one out because I haven't done a a hot take podcast in three weeks. As you know, I got my autism diagnosis three weeks ago. And it kind of, it threw my head a bit wobbly. It threw my head a bit wobbly. But now I'm absolutely grand. It threw my head wobbly to the point that I wasn't able to think in a hot take way because I was reassessing my identity. But now I'm grand, I'm solid again and I'm able to focus obsessively on things that I adore and love. And that's what that hot take was. I'll catch you next week, hopefully with another hot take. Enjoy the beautiful May weather. Enjoy... Oh, the fucking trees right now, lads. The leaves are only just budding. Go out in the evening at about 7 o'clock, between 7 and 8, and inhale the perfume and vitality of what nature has given us. This uh, At this specific time in May, it's, it's the smell of sap, it's the smell of life. It's the promise of existence. It's hanging in the air. 